It's the quotidian. It's episode three. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Quotidian Podcast. I'm Bradley Dennis. And today, I present my conversation with author and playwright Scott O'Moore. His new science fantasy novel, Battle of the Linguist Mages, is available now, with a second novel due in the next year. For the last 14 years, he was an active playwright in Seattle with major productions nearly every year during that time, and 45 short plays produced as well. He wrote the book, Lyrics and Music, for the acapella sci-fi musical Silhouette, which won the 2018 Gregory Falls Award for Outstanding New Play. He also wrote, directed, and produced three seasons of the sci-fi comedy web series The Coffee Table. We spoke about his new work and the inspiration he derives from others' creative output. The humbling process of submitting our art to others' critique and why maybe the most important inquiry today must be why we're not insisting on a massive redistribution of wealth and many more topics. This show is produced by Carolina Commons, and it's made possible by you, the listener. So stay tuned after the show to learn more about how you can help. And now, please enjoy my conversation with the psychedelic hipster brainiac genius that is Scott O'Moore. Hey, Scotto. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. First of all, um, congratulations on the book, uh, Battle of the Linguist Mages. I got my copy less than a week ago, and I'm afraid to say I've only gotten halfway through it, so don't ruin the end for me, although (laughs) I've got lots of questions um, about about the content and... um, but before we get into that, in general, how are you uh, weathering COVID and our general state of affairs out there in Seattle? Well, uh, COVID has, you know, not been uh, my favorite, uh, you know, topic lately because I have a, a, a dear friend who has got long COVID. And um, mm. so my perspective on COVID, I talk to her every day. I actually read to her every day or most every day. Mm. And, uh, it's a combination of stuff that is, that I've written or stuff that I would like to read and, you know, for professional reasons or just stuff that's my favorite stuff that I think she should hear. Yeah. And while that has been fantastic in terms of, you know, uh, growing close to my friend and kind of keeping her spirits up, it's not, uh, it heightens your awareness of how things can go wrong with both, your health and with the healthcare system in uh, Seattle, which has, uh, you know, I don't want to 
talk too much smack, but her particular journey has been harrowing yeah. and Seattle healthcare hasn't helped uh, at all. So, um, it, so the upshot is I kind of, my reaction was that when we went into lockdown, I never really came out of lockdown. And right. uh, 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 despite that fact, despite absolutely minimal interactions with the world and being fully vaccinated and boosted, I still got COVID oh, last wow. summer. I'm sorry. And it's just, uh, you know, the so even the so-called mild cases are not super great for you. Um, yeah. Uh, what they're finding, but, uh, you know, I bounce back and I'm still kind of in. So in the meantime, the extended lockdown has been super productive from the sense right. that I have written a ton <laughs> yeah. of stuff. You know, um, I, I kind of transitioned out of corporate life. And, and so I've just managed to write and write and write. And then I picked up a hobby along the way of, real, you know, I've always kind of dabbled in this sort of uh, becoming a, an aficionado of uh, short film and music videos, like short form content, I guess, for on, in video, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's sketch comedy or performance art or dance pieces, but things that kind of operate in that sub 10 minute level you know, up to like 30 minutes or what have you. Cause I've found that my attention span for really long form stuff has really dwindled. Like if you tell me a TV show has 13 episodes, I just freak out. I don't want to look at that. <laughs> and it's, you know, it started to erode my ability to watch movies, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so, but a 10 minute film, sometimes you can get a beginning, middle and an end and feel satisfied or actually they have to be innovative to give you a, an effective punch there. And so Absolutely. I've been really enjoying that. And, uh, and just, uh, you know, I'm still kind of, um, you know, I have four or five different blogs that I post to under various, uh, topics and aliases and whatnot. So, you know, it's, it, I'm definitely busy. It's just mm -hmm. not out in the world in the same way that I might yeah. have been otherwise. Cause I, you know, once I kind of realized that I, I, I and this was not, a, you know, I, I quote unquote, uh, temporarily at least retired from theater thinking I was going to work on books for a while and make a go at that and see how it went. And then, you know, theater was um, summarily kind of dismissed from the playing field by COVID. So, yeah. uh, I think, co you know, I'm just now hearing signs that theater world in Seattle at least is kind of rebounding and opening back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, I'm not, I'm not there anymore. I'm not kind of participating in that scene yet. Uh, yeah. You know, as I still have books to write and things to do on the literary front that are that's keeping me fully occupied. So, because that that's primarily your background, right? Was you you graduated with a degree in theater and and you've been writing for theater as long as I've known you, which has been over twenty years. And yeah, I mean, I was a I was a playwright in Seattle for I, I think I tallied it at over like in between fourteen and fifteen years total. Wow. And then, cause I, I wasn't productive in my twenties the way I was in my thirties and have been since, you know, I, a thing like I kind that. of, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I graduated with my degree. I moved to Chicago to do theater with a friend's theater company <clears throat> and they, we produced one play and then the founders had a falling out and, and I just wasn't sure at that point if I wanted to do theater and I dilly dallied and kind of just, you know, uh, artistically speaking, just kind of roamed for a while. And yeah, I wrote some terrible novels in my twenties that I won't, you know, that were checking off the lit, you know, the, you know, every, they kind of that saying about everybody's got n number of bad pages in them before they get to a good page. And I was, that was my time in the trenches, just 
churning out the bad pages. Uh, but then when I got to Seattle, I, I hit the ground running and was ready to do theater again. And so for almost 15 years, I was doing a major production almost every year and had like almost 50 short plays produced and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Um, but somewhere along the way I wrote a novella and that caught someone's attention. And, and so now, was that the, the, the uh, and, your favorite band will not save you? Yeah. Your favorite band cannot save you. Um, which was a sci-fi horror thing that I had uh, put together ostensibly. I was writing it. Uh, one of my, I have a, I have a Tumblr called things that cannot save you. And it was like many things in my uh, career, it was started kind of as a joke or to support a joke for, I was invited to do a talk at South by Southwest, an Ignite talk. And I don't know if you know the format of those where you get five minutes and a PowerPoint slide advances every, you know, 15 seconds, whether you're ready for it or not. And you time (laughs) your presentation to go along with that. And uh, so for it, it originated in Seattle and uh, I was the artist in residence for Seattle Ignite for a series of events. Uh, cause I, I was the only person at the time who wasn't, who was using the format to make art instead of to do talks, you know, like Ted talk right. style things or what have you. I was and doing, Ig- Ignite was doing pieces for a context is kind of like a, a technology Ted. Right. And it, yeah, isn't that Brady I mean, it, it, it was, and I, yeah. and I would say that it, it rather quickly evolved beyond simple techno simply technology as it's thrust, you know, I mean, that was the yeah. original appeal as I understood it, but you know, some of the more popular talks were about, you know, how to sell your car, how to buy a used car and then how to, you know, interesting marriage stories and relationship tactics and things like that, you know, became part of the general vocabulary pretty rapidly. So, but I, I was definitely the only person who was just telling, making up fiction or doing theater with the format. Cause at one point I did a piece where I played a character and had people coming out of the audience and all kinds of mayhem. Um, but so for South by Southwest, uh, I did a piece where I, I, uh, I played a, a technology blogger, uh, in a Lovecraftian universe. And he, his blog was things that cannot save you. And it's kind of a list of technology things that are portals to, you know, Lovecraftian horror. And I thought that was humorous, but to support that I stayed up all night, the week, the night before the presentation, I populated an actual Tumblr called things that cannot save you. And, uh, ironically that has become kind of the most popular thing I think I've ever done. Like it's got, you know, 15,000 followers now and people pay attention to it, which is not, you know, it's a drop in the bucket and it can't be monetized. There's no mechanism for that or anything like that. But still in terms of like the number of people who have seen my plays versus the number of people who have seen the, the ridiculous stuff I put on that blog, it's like, you know, it's puts things in perspective pretty fast. Um, And it also probably gave you a seed of, of, interest and in, in pe- things that are catching people's attention. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can, you know, but I, I kind of branched out and did a few other things from there. Cause uh, what happened was when I realized I had this big audience big for me at any rate. And I was like, well, they're not necessarily captive, but I bet I could serialize fiction there as part of the menu of things that I offer and have and have people read it and that just having an audience is it was a novel you know enough thing for me as a prose writer mm-hmm. so i i wrote a novella and like i said i serialized it there and it was called your favorite band cannot save you meant to tie into that blog and then you know one of the characters in the book had her own blog so i had to make that blog 
uh, so that if you read the book, it would link over to that blog. And now that blog is my second most popular blog or whatever. And it's just yeah. been super fun. But at any rate, that was all, you know, like in 2016, I think. And then uh, events transpired and in 2019, the novella came out and then uh, things got really rolling on that side of things. So. at the tumblr now and the image that came up is a woman with um looks like bok choy for a bra and a necklace made out of carrots and it says disguising yourself as a salad cannot save you it there's there's uh, on the one hand there's the really superficial absurdism of just dropping that kind of stuff and then periodically i'll do a whole slide with a story that kind of goes a slight bit deeper because I'm a, I am a, enough of a Lovecraft nerd that I can pull out the deep kind of cuts for the people who care. Yeah. Um, but I, it's, it's all very, very silly. There's no pretense about this adventure at all. It's when I'm in the mood to be very silly and do something kind of ridiculous. I'll pivot over to that blog for a while and, and pay attention to it. Um, yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the book uh, because there's so much going on in it. Um, in the intro that I will do for this, I'll describe in as clear a fashion as I can sort of the theme of it. But do you want to take a stab? Like, how, how are you describing the the book to people? How are you putting forth the themes? Because it's, it's well, multivariate for sure. Yeah, um, I, I wrote and polished a blurb that wound up being the foundation of the press release that kind of goes out, you know, cause every book has a little bit of an Amazon, you know, description. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I got to, to work on that cause it is hard to describe a little bit, but it's kind of, uh, you know, if I go to my website, actually, I don't know if the book cover has it on it. Well, I'm I was going to say, I've got the hardback. One. Is that the, the one that's on the inside of the cover? Yeah, if it starts with in modern day Los Angeles, a shadowy faction led, you know, I, like I could read that or, but that's, well, I'll, yeah, there's I'll a blurb a on that. Um, but Isabel, I guess, is what, the, oh, here we go. Yes, in modern day Los Angeles, a shadowy faction led by the governor of, of California develops the arcane art of combat linguistics, planting the seeds of a future totalitarian empire. And then it goes on in a little more detail. Um, but you were talking earlier about your attention span waning for large format things. Um, and it occurred to me, hearing you talk about that, that one of the principal characters is a advertising agency. And that yeah. it is the express written purpose and goal of advertising agencies to deliver the maximum amount of information in the shortest amount of time in as most convincing a way as possible. And is, was that part of what inspired this or where, I mean, I know that this was a play initially. Um, yeah. And yeah. we'll talk about that too, but what, what was sort of the, the impetus, the origin story behind the themes. This did start as a play. Um, and what inspired the play was I was at a party talking to a, 
a friend of ours who's a technologist and she was describing her day job to me and it just sounded really science fiction to me because I'm not an engineer. I don't have any kind of programming background or whatever. I have a degree in theater, which is very, you know, different. And, and she was sent her, she was working on the problem of uh, scaling up uh, voice recognition systems for internationalization. Mm. So the use case might be if you try to do voice search on a computer, but you're, you know, so they had solved it up to the point of being reasonably good at English. And now it was time to say, look, we need to know how to do this for 107 other languages or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and so she, her background, you know, she was a PhD in lingua in linguistics and, uh, and she was very patient with me and she just got really enthusiastic and explaining it to me because, you know, I, these were all foreign concepts to me. Um, not simply the technology, but kind of the linguistics behind it. And, and she remembers drawing on whiteboards at the party. Uh, you know, like we got really engaged <laughs> about it. You wow. know, just like, cause I, and so I, I, I ran off thinking, this is amazing. Like what could, what could go wrong? You know, how could this be twisted for evil? Um, and because one of the things that stuck with me was, uh, the way she described it was that, you know, every time you say a word, you're narrowing down the list of potential words that are going to come next. And that's what part of, you know, speech recognition is about is it's, it's predictive. Right. And, and I just kind of cheekily said to myself, you know, so if you, if, if you're going to have a thought that starts from a word that unpacks into various directions and eventually you have a sentence, um, who, if someone could hijack your mind and start implanting that first word, you know, uh, then they would, you know, be in control of your brain a little bit. And that the parallel to kind of the advertising, you know, uh, way of thinking of things where I think one of the characters in the book, it talks about, you know, her role is implanting meaning in the culture and guaranteeing its effect. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think advertising is kind of a hard science in the sense that they can ever guarantee anything. But in the book, they have a secret weapon that they use called power morphemes, which are units of meaning that are unnaturally dense, that mean more than they should. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are, you know, if, um, if you have a, a phoneme, which is a unit of the smallest unit of sound, a morpheme is the smallest unit of meaning. And uh, what their advertising agency is able to do in the book is craft morphemes that can mean multiple concepts or that can unpack in multiple ways simultaneously. Right. And then uh, then sonically, they're able to layer multiple of these on top of each other. Um, so if you imagine kind of, you know, the only parallel I can think of is a Tuvan throat singing where they're able to kind of generate an overtone at the same time as a, you know, the main tone. Right. If you can imagine doing that with spoken language where you're able to carve out multiple spoken morphemes in a chord, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, you can get even more meaning crammed into a space where it shouldn't. And then to make matters worse, some of these uh, villains are so good at it that they can disguise the fact that they're using power morphemes in regular speech without you realizing you're being affected by it. Mm -hmm. So these are the bad guys in the book is that they have this technology that they are developing that enables them to sneak meaning into various situations where it shouldn't be. And our, our heroine Isabel kind of stumbles into it and uh, all things go haywire from there.
Yeah. You know. And one of the maybe Lovecraftian aspects of the novel is that uh, it comes out that punctuation is actually an alien life form. And yeah. that kind of blew, that was the first mind blowing thing. Well, actually, no, the, <laughs> the idea of morphemes was pretty mind blowing. Power morphemes was pretty mind blowing, but then the revelation of, or the concept of punctuation as actually an interlocutor from some other dimension. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's a little bizarre to, to get it my mind around it. How did that yeah. come to you? Uh, honestly, I don't, we had that in the play. We definitely had it in the play and I don't remember what inspired it. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, in the play, you know, theater doesn't have some of the tools that prose has to kind of explain how this stuff works. So we actually had a dance number that kind of showed the dance of the punctuation marks as a proxy for the fact that there are living sentient, you know, species that kind of, uh, uh, they don't uh, inform our thought, so to speak, but they're integrated quite well into our thought. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't make us think anything and can't force us to think anything. But when we do our thinking, they're, they're right there. And so these power morphemes are signaling units between ambient punctuation in the minds of the people in the room. Um, and how that affects the, the minds of the people in the room is uh, once it does subtly, then they, then they get active and then they do start to alter your perceptions of, of what's going of, you know, what you're experiencing, which has a, a direct ripple effect on actual reality in the book. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's some kind of, you know, hypothesis about this that uh, uh, I'm ignorant about because I'm not a fully trained linguist and I only learn as much as I need to learn for a given story. But there's kind of this premise that, you know, what you perceive uh, is directly affected by the way, uh, you know, the language that you use to perceive it. Mm -hmm. And these these people are real wizards or mages, as the case may be, in mm -hmm. terms of being able to weaponize that stuff, you know, so they've got and so it becomes a spellcasting system, you know, in the book. Uh, well, uh, and I think even at one point, if I'm remembering correctly, you you compare it to archetypes <laughs> in in depth psychology, actually. And that's one of the things that kind of flagged my attention was that there are these sort of subliminal or super conscious symbols that permeate culture and personhood mm -hmm. over millennia um, that it, it had a similar resonance to me. Um, did that occur to you at all or? No, I, I think that must've been, that must've been kind of accidental just because I don't have a background in that kind of psychology and I don't, uh, I'm kind of stumbling along blind in, in terms of viewing it from Isabel's perspective who, mm -hmm. you know, Isabel is a, is a, you know, especially writing it from her perspective, she only learns what she knows, you know, to get through, to survive. It's not a big, 
she doesn't get the whole round, you know, the, all the theory that the others have um, yeah. before the book of over. She never, you know, she gets, she gets a lot and she knows a lot, but it's her lenses through the video game world. And she actually not, that's where I, the archetypal thing comes into play, which is the, mm-hmm. I would, I would use the term tropes, I guess, which are the classic kind of storytelling tropes that animate um, culture. She's, she's, in a postmodern way, vividly fluent in these uh, tropes and uses her knowledge and fluency with them to become the master of this game world. Mm-hmm. And when this game world um, exceeds its boundaries and you realize it's kind of a real place, um, she has advantages there because she understands it so, so deeply. Um, and when they roam off, I, so you, you said don't spoil the second half of the book and, uh, I did skip ahead a little bit to get some context. Yeah, so. there are some passages in the second half of the book that I was about to bring up, which would which do touch on what you're talking about. Now that I think about it, it's it's the first half of the book where they don't they don't go into it. But by by the time you get into so there's this uh, concept called the logosphere, which yes, that um, was actually in my list of notes to talk about too. Yeah, and that's just something I stumbled across, you know, many years ago when I was reading, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a neat little a neat place, and it was. I guess conjured uh, as a concept at the time of, you know, the dawning of radio, where this was new to people, and and the transmission of ideas over airwaves was uh, was new, and people intellectuals started imagining that there was a space where those ideas that were being broadcast might continue to circulate and live, even if there wasn't a receiver, you know, actively picking up those ideas, and it kind of mutated into this notion of you know, any idea that kind of has been committed to a, a medium that we humans use has been committed to this idea space or logos, logosphere, as they coined. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got to thinking, well, it would be, it would certainly be fun to find out what that place is like if it were tra- traversable by the human mind today. You know, yeah. all of the dead ideas that are lurking there that no longer um, percolate as well as the ones that are actively clawing and fighting for survival, you know, in today's information rich kind of environment, uh, yeah. what that's like. And so her entry into the logosphere is, uh, through the game world, you know, and then they kind of rip a hole in it and go, go on a, a joy ride across the logosphere as it were. And that's when they run into some very serious trouble. Well, and, and it almost seems like there's a real parallel in in the internet and in the sort of hypertext of the information that's available there. Um, the the character Isabel goes in. This is all VR, right? This is a sort of immersive. Initially, that, yeah. Initially, the game is a VR game. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then it and it then... transforms. And we're now we're going past my reading, so I oh, gotcha. I, I have yeah. glimmers. But um, one of the things that occurs to me is, you know, this is this is a very real moment. Uh, things are happening in the metaverse, as it were, at a fairly alarming rate. And number one, do you is that something you dabble with much? No, no, it's it's actually kind of hilarious that. 
so I'm I'm vividly sort of anti Facebook and mm-hmm. I don't intend to participate in a metaverse that's controlled by or, by Facebook at any kind of meaningful level. <laughs> Why ever not, Scotto? <laughs> yeah, I wonder. What, what? I wonder. And yeah. And and you know, and that's not it hasn't been super easy to break away from Facebook in the sense that most of my friends don't share that sentiment and are still sure happily or at least, you know, begrudgingly using that platform on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and even I'm using Instagram. Like I could, I don't use Facebook, but I, I don't mind using Instagram as much because it doesn't feel as assaultive or what have you, mm-hmm. even though I know I'm feeding a parent company that's full of evil. But um, at any rate, you know, I had always said to myself uh, on the music side of things, the example is, you know, my, I am a music blogger and I, I pay very, uh, close attention to a set of genres. And I try to stay current with that stuff because I observed at one point how, uh, people tended to become, uh, satisfied at a point in their lives that they had learned enough about music and they were just content with the pool of music that they'd accumulated or, you know, these days they're, I guess, you know, and this is pre Spotify. So you didn't have an algorithm that could do the work of surfacing stuff for you. This is like my parents back in when I was young, mm-hmm. you know, they never stopped listening to music past the eighties and they were just content with that. And I, and then there's no judgment. Like if you're content, you're content, who cares? That's great. Good for you mm-hmm. or what have you. But I just wanted to stay current with music. Well, it's looking to me though, like it's not going to be as possible with technology because I'm going to become a Luddite about this metaverse, uh, pretty fast like i already can you know i'm reading the stories about the culture and that's developing there and i just i'm I'm not going to participate i just i'm not going to do it so i I, you know i had written this entire book uh where a vr game you know it's 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 easy enough to imagine what a vr game is like like this is that's one of the science fiction pieces of it is we don't have a a world of warcraft style vr game that hundreds of millions of people are playing that's so you know we're far enough into the future that that's happening in this book um so it's not something that i could experience you know but i hadn't even tried on a vr helmet when i wrote the book that you yeah. know so but pop culture presents you with enough kind of ambient uh awareness of what it looks like you know you can see videos on youtube of people's pov and stuff like that uh so it didn't hinder the book at all, but it's definitely probably going to hinder aspects of my future in terms of I'm going to be the grumpy old man, you know, who watches culture advance away from him and <laughs> just kind of has to put well, up with fascinating. the TV interface like, for this world. I, I just had a conversation with Derek Mazzoni uh, and and I think the question I asked him was, you know, because he travels all over the world to look for music and um, and kind of brings it back to to folks who are listening to the radio show and I was asking him Mm -hmm. how the pandemic has affected that. And we were talking about the virtual space and he emphatically believes that virtual spaces are going to be sort of new communities and, and really embracing that and kind of semi jokingly saying, yeah, boomers and Gen X's, you know, have a little trouble accepting and acclimatizing to, to that change. And I, I can totally see that. And at the same time, you know, when we were exchanging emails, I was talking to you about, or I think I mentioned the term meaning crisis. And you were like, what are you pointing at there? And the rate at which 
young teens in particular are digesting social media and the effects that it has on their psyche, their egos, like all that sort of stuff. I can imagine we're transforming ourselves in some pretty, in ways that we won't really be able to account for for a generation or more until we mm -hmm. sort of see those effects writ large. And I can't think of a, a more concentrated way of, of affecting that than putting your entire mind inside a computer. Um, yeah. And so it's, you know, that's the feel of the novel has, at least at the onset and whenever they're in that virtual world has a bit of a ready player one vibe to it. Uh, and I don't, mm -hmm. not in terms of plot, but just like, that's the only other real comparable analog I can think of to a VR story. Uh -huh. yeah. um, and, and that's a very, that story has a very hero's journey arc to it. Whereas, you know, what you're doing, it has, I think a little more subtlety and, and variation, but it's still, you're anticipating trends in a way that I think, um, shows some real positives and, and negatives at the same time. So I don't know if there's a question there, but it's, as a commentary, well, it seems like it's pretty apt. It's interesting because I, the democratization of technology in the book where everybody's got a headset and they're talking about, you know, well, I'm just using a cheap Chinese knockoff and blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I'm using a white label that's produced by this company. Like, that's not the future that we're currently headed for. Um, maybe we will be, but, you know, like we can't get um, globally, at least it's I, I think we're a ways off from being able to suggest that there's going to be some, you know, it's interesting, the Derek Mazzoni case, because, you know, there are parts of the world that can't get vaccinated, let alone get VR right. up and running. And, yeah. Uh, so there's going to be, if anything, an increase in the gulf between parts of the globe uh, if, if there is this kind of migration into the metaverse. Like a, um, a first VR world and a third VR world? <laughs> well, yeah, or even yeah. assuming that they're, you know, that you get another one. But there's a yeah. part of me that is currently kind of uh, imagining that you know, because there's a lot of jokes about like, well, the metaverse is a great place to go and replicate your office environment and meet with coworkers. And, and people are really kind of denigrating that aspect of it. Yeah. Like, like let's, you know, use our imagination for something slightly more um, noble than recreating this, you know, slave environment that everyone hates this yeah. sort of, you know, unless you're this, unless you're the CEO pulling down $8 million a week or whatever, nobody likes these office environments and let alone a lower resolution, you know, VR environment version of it, where you've got a thing strapped to your face. That's not anybody's ideal for the future. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I had a friend who brought over, you know, an Oculus uh, helmet and played some games on it. And it's, I don't know, the technology itself is fantastic. I'm, I'm, politically against the company that's manufacturing some of it and yeah. leading the charge. I don't think Facebook has earned the right to steer culture at all in any direction. They I have agree. earned the right to turn around and shut down if the, anything, and they're not going to. So that makes them kind of among history's great villains is this corporate actor. And if we're going to treat corporations as people in our broken culture, then they need to 
Every, you know, we put people in jail and sometimes uh, worse in this culture, but corporations skate and Facebook is among the worst. They've yeah. destabilized so many aspects of our culture, not the least of which democracy itself. I'm probably preaching to a number of choirs and I can stop. But but my point is like, you know, they're not the idea mavens that they think they are. And if yeah. they're leading the charge spiritually for the metaverse it's going to be a soulless husk of a place it's not going to be a thriving kind of you know place like you might have imagined in something like snow crash or you know the only other kind of vr book that i can think of that might um yeah that might have a positive you know and even there you know snow crash if i recall correctly because i haven't read it in a long time but that's like th there are metaverse fiefdoms you know it's not a unified controlled by a single corporate actor it's like you hop from fiefdom yeah. to fiefdom and uh, at least there you might inspire the variety and cross-cultural kind of pollination that you want to see sparks right. of innovation that happen from the ground up instead of being imposed, uh, you know, at the tip of a PowerPoint presentation or something. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think we're in complete agreement there. And, um, you know, folks like Tristan Harris and Daniel Schmachtenberger are really investigating pretty hardcore, uh, both the dangers associated with social media and Facebook in particular, but also like, what are the, the real time, um, fixes and solutions to those problems. And it's, it looks like it's going to get a lot worse before it can possibly get better. Um, but yeah. one of the potential solutions, and I don't want to devolve into a political conversation, but it's, sure, sure. no, it's all right. It's, uh, is, um, the idea of, of having sort of a blockchain democracy where people are able, where everything is open source and everyone is actually able to have free access to your politicians via social media so that you can actually in real time influence decisions. And you could, you know, as opposed to it just being a, a social manipulator and an ego booster or deficit, you could actually sort of, see what your politicians were doing. You could actually see what the referendums were on your computer and you could actually interact in real time and have some sort of a transparent, real participatory democracy. But, you know, again, there's a, we're a long way away from that because it takes we're a lot of power away from mm -hmm. people who are, who were orchestrating things. So, um, yeah. to, to steer back to the book, I'm really curious. There's a couple things. One, when I was reading your acknowledgments, um, you have uh, you had a sensitivity reader, which I thought was um, I'd never seen that title before. So I thought that was really cool. And you actually take uh, quite a bit of care to um, identify characters by pronouns so that it's not I mean, obviously, when you're reading a book, you're reading the pronouns of the character. Um, so it's less for the reader as it is to show that the characters are concerned about those yeah. things, those identities. Yeah. And, and so one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, I mean, just being blunt, you're neither female nor lesbian, you're a white guy and you're writing about yeah. a, a, a woman. But yeah. I also know that this was coming from, this came from a play where you're actually able to bring, you know, people of different genders and uh, sexual persuasions on stage who can actually inhabit these characters. And so 
I guess there's kind of two questions. How, what's important to you to portray these characters with those kinds of traits in the novel? And also um, how much of this inclusion comes from your plays where you can actually cast these real people versus in a fiction where you have to invent it? And did that even, um, it's kind of a complex question. It is a complex question. And it, it, to, to me, there's, there's one side of it, which is like having the confidence to write um, somebody who's not identical to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of fundamental because you'll like see, and theater played a huge role in being comfortable writing. You know, you can't, unless I was going to write, you know, 12 angry men analogs for the rest of my life. I needed to understand yeah. <laughs> how to write all these different people. That's, sure. that's the playwright's challenge. And, and the playwright has as their tool, you know, in their toolkit, they have the workshop process where you do have, you know, men and women, you have uh, increasingly, you have non-binary representation at the table and you kind of have different, depending on where you are in the world, you know, you can have a different racial component of who's participating because theater can be very white in different parts of the country, but in yeah. Seattle, we, it's a little, not as bad. And, and so the, 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 the tool that you have though, is that, um, and this is true, whether you're a playwright or whether you're a novelist or whatever is like, how do you absorb feedback that comes in that just doesn't match your worldview because you yeah. just didn't know? Like, so there's kind of the, let alone the, you know, the raw nuts and bolts of, well, the plot is dumb or the pacing is slow or whatever. There's also the, you're not doing a good job characterizing this thing that you don't understand very well because it's not your world. Let me explain it to you and see if you can integrate that into what you're doing. Well, that is a lifelong process of being open to that level of feedback of kind of going, you know, you can't, and I'll, I'm a big, big proponent of the workshop process, uh, in theater. Um, but it's harrowing in a certain way, because what you do is you write a draft and then you invite n number of actors and designers and, you know, collaborators to sit in a room and the actors all read it out loud in real time. And then they turn around and tell you right then and there what they thought. So there's no, you don't get to, you know, digest, your adrenaline is already up just hearing your words out loud and you've got a list of things you can hear are not working. And then that gets reinforced and your list gets appended to. And uh, taking feedback is really a challenge. It's not, you know, it's not an innate skill. creative writing world, which I did not participate in, you know, this is, this is even more harrowing apparently, um, because if you can imagine all those theater artists in a room, we're all collaborators, you know, at the end of the day, some chunk of those people might be working together to put that play up on its feet. A playwright is one piece of a tiny, you know, one piece of the puzzle. You're providing a blueprint that's going to go up in a, in a creative writing you know, workshop seminar where you're getting your master's degree or what have you, it's more, uh, my understanding, I've heard it described is that it can be more competitive and more cutthroat. And that's mm-hmm. not exactly gives you, doesn't exactly give you the warm and fuzzies you need to develop a thick skin around taking the feedback about what your weaknesses are. Right. You, you can start to read ulterior motives into that uh, feedback that you're getting. But, yeah. but anyway, so to, you know, fast forward and like, I've been paying attention to kind of trends to the extent that I can, you know, uh, 
uh, trends in kind of uh, how the science fiction literary community has evolved and what their thinking ha is on some of these topics. And, and yeah, if I, I knew going in that, uh, you know, in addition to, so writing, uh, a convincing, uh, woman as a man has been challenge. Number one, that goes for me, goes back to the, like high school or actually mm -hmm. I, I wrote it. I wrote a screenplay when I was literally like, and I say screenplay, it was like 20 pages long, but it was a thing that I wrote when I was like in middle school and uh -huh. I shared it with my uh, instructor at a children's theater where I took acting classes and she came back the next day and she goes, well, there's only one girl in this story and she's just there to be rescued by the boys. And that's not satisfactory to me. And that was her feedback. And, and, you know, I'm like 12 years old and I just <laughs> spent, the rest of my you know career digesting kind of that wow and thinking about that and formative going, wow, feedback what? it was it hit me at right just the right time you know as i'm yeah. trying to learn how to write it's like okay i'm going to incorporate that um that doesn't give me access to every possible you know uh permutation of what that means but it's a place to start you know it's a place to start thinking and questioning and whatnot but yeah now this book i wanted to you know there, you know, half the cast, half the main cast is, is black. And, and, you know, there's, um, a non-binary character in the mix and, and several of the characters are, um, are gay. And it's like, maybe I'm going to miss something here that I don't know about. And it's become, I don't want to say trendy because I don't want to make it sound like it's some passing fad. It's become an integrated tool. I should say that yeah. people in the science fiction community are relying on this, they're, they're a type of editor in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. Or you might say that, you know, I have a, I have a pool of beta readers that I go to who are trusted enough to give me the hard feedback. Like I know that they're, that they have competency in, 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 in giving constructive feedback and maybe their interests are sufficiently aligned that I can also get critique on the ideas. But, but this, the sensitivity reader there, that person's role is to really, um, you know, they'll, they'll advertise what they can uh, represent, what representations they can give you feedback on. So, if, yeah. you know, you can kind of make sure that you're being covered. And, uh, and it was pretty, you know, eye opening. Like I, I 100%, I'd never worked with somebody like that before, because this was my first novel. Yeah. And uh it was eye-opening and it, I feel like I just kind of leveled straight up. Like I just immediately went, Oh, there's a whole, she gave me like a 10 page document of here are the tropes that you're trading in that you could uh, maybe not do that. Wow. And I was surprised to learn that, uh, you know, the thing that was, you know, I made mistakes on many different fronts, uh, but the, the pool of mistakes by the biggest uh, sort of pool was ableism and not recognizing how frequently I was just taking uh, an ableist perspective and a point of view, you know, as the default and kind of at the uh -huh. expense of the way we think about um, people who, with disabilities. And uh, that, I mean, that, that made a permanent lasting uh, impression on me to the extent that I, there's an, an entire set of vocabulary that I don't deploy anymore. It just doesn't, it's not, I understand why I should, why it's harmful. Yeah. Um, so at any rate that, you know, that was like draft number five out of, six and a half or seven, I think where I got that feedback and, uh, it, it was, it was powerful stuff. It was really neat. Yeah. So the, the sort of, for lack of a better term, psychotechnology that you're talking about, the ability to, to be able to put something out there and be vulnerable in the moment to get feedback on it and to take the feedback and without it 
interfering with your own sense of self, I think is an important one for, for an artist to begin with. But also I think I would anticipate, especially given what we know about the effects of social media at writ large, just expanded in general for, for people. I mean, I think this is true often of, of theater folks, because like you say, we're collaborative. We're used to Mm -hmm. the giving and taking, especially, you know, you have experience in the improv world where everything is a yes. Um, and there are no bad suggestions, uh, that, that, that mindset, uh, is an important one moving forward, especially as, as the political landscape changes so quickly. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how that affects you in other parts of your life, in other artistic works. Like, is that something you notice? I think it's most prominent with these major works because they unfold over a long enough period of time in the creation that, you know, the various stages and levels and the steps that you're, you know, ascending are more visible over a long view um, and publishing is, you know, extremely, uh, slow in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can wait for feedback for a really long time. And then, so that has pros and cons. And one of the advantages is, you know, I'll submit a draft and then it will be months before I get back an edit letter from my editor mm-hmm. in that time, you know, months, multiple months, you know, anywhere from two to six months is, I have discovered sufficient amount of time for your taste in things to change radically. Um, I know that about music. I know that about film. Like if you're somebody who thinks about, uh, you know, what you're absorbing and is kind of in a constant mode of just, you know, and, and artists tend to be those people because, you know, that's that old saying of like, you know, it's, the people who are making the art, it's the hardest for it's their enjoyment of the art is kind of a little bit skewed because they know how the sausage is made. And so mm-hmm. when I see a piece of theater, I'm thinking about, well, how do they do that? How are they accomplishing this effect in the moment when I should be just thinking about what the story wants me to be thinking? About? I've I often told my wife that I'm the worst person. She knows this from experience. I'm the worst person to go see theater with because I'm not watching a piece of theater. I'm watching the tech and the lights and the acting yeah. styles and the choices that are being made. Yeah. So I can completely identify with that oh, it, mindset. Even, even when it, it, even when it works uh, and the theater is so dynamic and outstanding that it captures me, mm-hmm. I find that that immediately sparks my brain into a creative mode and 10 minutes will go by where I start thinking about something else altogether. Yes. Like I get into a different project or a different, I, I start to react and imagine what my reaction would be in a piece of art or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and imagine that as a dialogue and it's not, I'm supposed to sit still and get to the end of the play. You've entered into a contract, Scotto. You're supposed to be paying attention. Yeah, I know. So, so, you know, that said, so, you know, like I'll get a, I got my edit letter back for mages and, uh, and it was, you know, substantive set of notes from a really talented editor. And and I think I went, you know, I, my job, I've perceived my job as like to, to please, I, I would love if my work could please everybody. I'm fully aware that that's physically impossible, but I'll nevertheless try really hard to take care of the obvious things uh, that I can take care of in a, in a 
from an edit letter or, you know, like if we go around the room in a workshop after a play and 15 people give me the same note, whether I agree with the note or not, if I want those 15 people are right, like they have that experience and I either want them to have it or I don't. It's not whether my play is doing what I want it to do or not. It's just like people are going to have the experience that they're going to have. And you can either facilitate that or, or sometimes you want, you do want that, that dissonance. You want people to hit a road bump and, and have to question what just happened to them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm enough of a populist that in, in, in spirit, if not in practice that I just, I want everybody to enjoy the heck out of it. So yeah, but then, you know, but your taste changes in between, like I got my own work back and I was like, not only did I agree with my editor's notes, but I was spotting all kinds of things that I realized, no, this doesn't work anymore. I could do this better. I've had time to digest what I did. And in the meantime, I've seen 83 short movies and, you mm-hmm. know, listened to 1200 new albums on, on, you know, on my MP3 player or whatever. And so it all, you've, you've changed as a person. Yeah. And, and an so artist, yeah. there are these, there are these milestones in the process of making a book that unfold over the course of a long period of time. And so yeah. a book can change, you know, It actually, you know, what you're talking about is changing as an artist and what you said earlier about your constant hunger for for more music and staying current and rel- uh, and understanding what's what's going on um, brings to mind the kind of the notion that music in particular, at least in my experience, because I've had a similar experience, um, is is a very um, faithful uh, example of, of zeitgeist and and sort of understanding in a in a real I'm using the word visceral a lot but it, it strikes me that way mm-hmm. uh, what's what's happening where people are uh, what their experience is uh, how, and I don't want to write it off as you know the fashion or trend of the time but it's mm-hmm. and and I think I know you or knew you well enough to know that you're you're thinking mostly in terms of electronica and in those forms of music. But I, I want to mm-hmm. hear you talk a little bit more about what it is that you get out of that process and what, how it feeds you. Cause it, it is a bit of an appetite, right? It's, it's kind of like, yeah. there's this need to, yeah. to grab and consume and, and also digest and create from that. Cause you're also, mm-hmm. Yeah, you yep. do DJ work and you create music and how's that process for you? Well, there's two, t- there's two things that I'm, I'm kind of looking for when I'm out in a consumptive mode, like looking for stuff. I either want uh, what I would call more of the same, you know, do the same thing that I already know that I love, just keep doing it really well. Yeah. That's a set of things that I want. And then I, uh, separately i want to be completely surprised as often as possible by a thing that exceeds my expectations in some way and my antenna are focused differently depending on what i'm expecting out of the things that i'm consuming so in the you know i'm i know less about filmmaking in general than i do about music so i'm surprised more frequently and uh, i take that into my work in the sense that um i used to say this about my plays uh 
you know, which the format would be a two act play over the course of two hours in a French theater house in Seattle, you wouldn't, I, I didn't, I, you shouldn't be able to predict how act two was going to unfold simply because you made it to the end of act one. Like you, you shouldn't be able to go out at intermission and have a drink with your friends and go, yep, can't wait to see that this, 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 and this happens to wrap this story up. But yeah. never be tropey enough that that is the, the pathway. Yeah. And there are many ways, and it's not for its own sake. It's not that you are, you know, because you can surprise people with raw shocks that are, you know, the theatrical or the literary equivalent of a jump scare in movies. And it's not a, a long-term effective strategy for, uh, you know, developing an aesthetic, so to speak. It, but it's more about baking in enough uh, ideas that you can really um, go in an unconventional direction and still have an emotional impact. And that keeps things mm -hmm. fresh for everybody because the quick way to diminish an emotional impact is to retread kind of a familiar trope and you know, and people go, Oh, this is the part where I'm supposed to feel this because it is similar to the number of times I've felt this before when this trope is deployed and you don't want to do that as much as you can. Yeah. You know, so, so, uh, you know, and this applies to things as basic as like, you know, the structure of a, of a novel as being like something that is, you know, this rising action towards a culmination, a climax point, and then falling action to a denouement. Like there's a lot of critique of that model as being uh, outdated and we shouldn't be leaning on it. And it's unnecessarily, it's got these weird masculine overtones and we don't like forget about it. And you mentioned the hero's mm -hmm. journey uh for ready player one um there there is this concept of the heroine's journey that has mm -hmm. been proffered by some various folks and well i'm not going to speak for them but i i'm i the one of the key pieces that i took to heart for this book is that the hero's journey is about a solitary you know, figure who shoulders the burden of rescuing or you know questing and and fate goes it alone into the underworld and comes out triumphant and then as a result of it though uh has to you know remain this lone figure by the end of the story they ride off into the sunset a heroine's mm -hmm. journey is much more about accumulating the friends and the community support that you need yeah. so that you as a team are facing a challenge and have each other's backs and and you are successful because you are engaging your your friend group, not because you're protecting them. And uh, that's the kind of that's a really fresh thing for me uh, mm -hmm. as a writer. It's just to, to to imagine that you know you put your team together and you and that's it's it just has it resonates a little more strongly with how I like to view the world. Um, it also gives you a place to to where you end up is with a stronger uh, a stronger theme than when you started not it's not this isolated yeah. person like you said who rides off into the sunset or what you know what's going to happen now you actually have a community you have yeah. possibility you have potential it's not it's not singular yeah. it's multivariate yeah. yeah absolutely so that's that's kind of one of the things that i was doing differently with this book uh but then you know, my books, because I've written a couple more now that haven't been, that haven't come out yet, but I'm noticing that, you know, I'll have, instead of one giant roller coaster ride towards a single hill, um, I'll, I take us up and down and up and down a bunch of times to kind of accomplish an effect. Mm -hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong, you know, that's, 
that's exciting to me. I didn't re- expect the feedback on this book to be what it was. So, uh, you know, people were saying that it, it have been saying that it's packed full of, you know, that it, I think the one of the reviewers said it's there's enough material for six books. Yeah. And 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 I didn't and and that the the you know the formatting is just the pacing is kind of bonkers and the ideas are stacked in this crazy way and then I didn't see any of that coming. I didn't realize I was operating that way. Like I didn't get, I didn't, I, you know, my novella was only 20,000 words and this is significantly bigger than novel, but even my novella only got hints of, Hey, this is really weird. And that was a, I attributed that to the, 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 the way the Lovecraftian horror kind of surprised everybody at the end of that book. This, I just thought this is going to be a rip roaring yarn, you know, and instead it's (laughs) turned out to, affect people very differently and you know whether they like it or they hate it which there's two camps by and large everybody's kind of in agreement that it's really uh bonkers in this one way so yeah um you one of your blogs is is about new music and and stuff like that because i'm always interested and i follow that one fairly closely what you're what you're listening to and what's interesting to you so i won't ask you about that we'll put that in in the description of the podcast so um, speaking of heavy questions, I want to put my final question to you. So steal myself, steal yourself. And I guess I'm asking this question in sort of a, a large context, but take it as you will. What is the question that's not being asked right now? Um, God, you know, for me, it just comes down to why are we not currently throwing down the battlement? You know, why are we not currently engaged in the struggle for to redistribute the wealth? Like, really, why are we not in the streets all the time, constantly demanding a change? And I don't know. Mm. I mean, it's not comfortable for me to imagine being out in the streets. You know, I'm, I can barely leave my basement. Why are we not trying something different? Uh, and why are we letting capitalism get away with it? It's just... This country, you know, if I could, you know, so at any rate, I don't have a lot of affection for the structures of this society. I don't, I don't, I'm not looking back at the past and thinking if only we could be like we used to be this sort of conservative, you know, wet dream of remember when things were, you know, remember when nobody challenged our superiority and we just got to do what we wanted (laughs) all the time. Remember those good old days? Like, I don't, that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah. It's not about money at the end of the day. It's about just how much you want to care about people. Then there isn't that there's no similar pool of wealth when it comes to caring about human beings. There there's a a severe lack of that at the top levels. Um, so Sorry to end on a downer like that. But at any rate, there's still good music being produced. And if you like house music, I can point you to a few DJs. Well, on that note, where can we find you on the internets, interwebs? Um, my homepage uh, or my website, scotto.org, kind of shows you around what I what my projects are. And then I, you can find kind of all of my social activity is is. Uh, indexed in a sidebar on scotto.org so you can find all the various places that I hang out and connect with me on Twitter and Instagram and all these places. I'm, I'm, I'm around. I'm easy to get to you. You are. And the book is battle of the linguist mages by Mr. Scotto Moore. 
thank you for your time and your brilliance and your art as ever. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great, really fun conversation. We breathe, we eat, we sleep, and we dream. We love, we cry, we fight, we make up, and we play. Play lets us discover new parts of ourselves. In play, we expand our potential. We feel safe. We trust. In that safety and trust, we experiment with what we can imagine. Better art, better us. A better world for ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities. Our shared humanity. A common good. That's what Carolina Commons does. We take the world away for a while to give people the chance to see new perspectives, to listen to new voices from others and from our own internal worlds before rejoining and participating in the world renewed. We help people, teams, and communities connect to their inherent creative voice and to re-envision the world. With new skills, new voices, and new visions, we can help one another create a better future. Visit www.carolinacommons.org to learn more about how you can take your imagination, innovation, and problem solving to the next level. Carolina Commons, uncommon creativity for all.